At the moment my life is smothered in darkness, and yet I've never felt closer to the light. I'm suffused in light, awash in light, awakened by a light that has seeped into every crevice and corner of my heart, soul, and mind. It's a light that blinds, but a light that brings every aspect of my past life into focus, even as it sharpens my vision for the future. I cannot see, but I've never seen clearer. I know this doesn't make any sense, but that's what happens when your life is turned backwards, upside down, and inside out with a brilliant flash and a clear call. I've had a great deal of time to think about everything that's happened in the past 33 years of my life. I've refused food and drink in the last three days since that fateful encounter, and I've spent my time deep in reflection and deep in prayer, but not a kind of prayer that I've ever experienced before. I'll talk more about that later. When the light came, I was completely stricken. I fell to my knees, vaguely aware that my traveling companions had collapsed in shock as well. It's funny, but do you know what the first thing that came into my mind when the light hit me? It was a long-forgotten memory, an otherwise insignificant memory, a small memory from my childhood. But as the light swallowed my senses and stripped my soul bare, this is the memory that flooded back into my head. I was young, maybe four or five. My father had taken me to synagogue in my hometown, and it must have been getting late because the sun was setting behind the Taurus Mountains in the northwest. I was following my mother out of the auditorium, around a stone pillar, and taking my first step down the stone staircase when I looked up into the setting sun. I remember freezing in my tracks, utterly dazzled, my eyesight not yet accustomed to the blinding glare after having spent hours in the dimly lit building behind us. I was stunned, unable to look right at it, obviously, but also unable to look away, captivated by its beauty. It was then that my father stooped down beside me and put his hand on my shoulder, rousing me from my stupor by calling out to me, Saul, Saul, why have you stopped? I have work to do, and look, there are Gentiles gathering. I think we'd best be going. It was that one word that shook the dazzlement out of my eyes and caused me to turn from the light. Gentiles. Whenever my father would say the word, he would spit it out like foul-tasting goat cheese. Gentiles. And because of where we lived, father was forced to spit that word out all the time. See, my hometown of Tarsus was famous for several reasons. First of all, its beauty. The mountains to the north and the west, the Mediterranean Sea 12 miles to the south, which, when the wind was just right, you could smell and even hear. The Sidness River running swift and clear down from the mountains and through the city. Tarsus was a beautiful place, famously so. Second of all, Tarsus was famous for its tents. In the mountains were long-haired goats, and their black leather and wool made for a unique product renowned throughout the Roman Empire. Father was a master tent maker, as am I myself, since I was required to learn a trade to support myself in my life as a Pharisee among Pharisees. Or, I suppose I should say, my former life as a Pharisee among Pharisees. Every fiber of my being over the last three days tells me that I'm an entirely new man, a man reborn in the light. I don't know if I'll ever give up tent making altogether, but I certainly have given up that which I clung to, that which gave me my worth and my identity. I've given up being a Pharisee. The light has made that clear. So beauty and tents. Tarsus is famous for those things, but there's a third thing as well. The thing which my father warned me about on the steps of the synagogue. The thing which I was raised to understand I was superior to. Gentiles. Tarsus was full of them. Being a major gateway city in Asia Minor, between Rome and the trading post to the east, meant that many exotic people filled Tarsus with exotic languages and exotic merchandise and exotic belief systems. 
There are as many pagan shrines in Tarsus as there were wine merchants, which is really saying something in Tarsus. But Father raised me to understand I was above all of that. The faithlessness of the Gentiles only inspired me to study harder, to master the law, and to dedicate myself to remaining as pure as any human has ever been through strict adherence to the commands of Scripture. I refused to associate with the pagans, a challenging task in a multicultural city like Tarsus. However, soon even the other boys in synagogue grew tiresome to me. They were more interested in wrestling behind the lectern than they were with memorizing the prophet Hosea. I was more serious than that. And so I longed to leave my hometown. Sure, Tarsus was a beautiful city, but the only thing I found truly beautiful was the law. Yes, Tarsus was famous for producing accomplished tent makers like myself, but the only task I ever truly set my heart on, the one job I saw myself striving for, was that of reaching Jerusalem and training to become a master among the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin Council. And yes, Tarsus was famously overflowing with wicked, impure Gentiles, but I was committed to removing myself as far as possible from the sinful stench of their infidelity. I would not shop at their booths, I would not show kindness to them, and I would not waste the precious truth of Scripture on their utter ignorance. <sighs> I've thought about all this a great deal in the past three days. For 33 years of life, the thought of living among the Gentiles made me want to scrub my hands with soap. Now, however, well, ever since I encountered the light, I haven't felt the sickness I used to feel at the thought of their impurity. In fact, my whole understanding about impurity seems to have been completely inverted. More than anything, the light has made clear to me just how utterly, absolutely, pathetically impure I have been. The light illuminated my soul for me, and I was able to see how black it truly was. I have been chief of sinners. I have been a wretched being, a traitorous son of Israel. I thought I was a chief of Israel. Here I am, chief of sinners. I can't say I've ever felt like this before. But do you know what the strange thing is? I think now of how corrupt and unclean I've been, but the thought doesn't fill me with dread. In my darkness, the light still lingers, and the light's filled me with hope and joy and peace. I never had those things before. My life was following the exact track I had always dreamed it would follow. I was an excellent student, and I trained under the greatest teacher of my day. Under Gamaliel, I rose to the forefront of all the young men studying the scriptures. I was a powerful debater, able to cripple the weak-minded and the blasphemous. I was able to intricately decipher scripture with a surgeon-like mind and a lawyer-like arrogance. I was only a few formalities away from my ultimate goal, rising to prominence on the Sanhedrin, becoming a Hebrew of Hebrews, a gatekeeper for the holiness of the temple. My devastating intellect was my great hope. My ability to crush wrong thinking was my joy. My prestige among my people was my peace. Until I encountered the light. I have never known hope or joy or peace like this. I have never known love like this. It was in the way he called me, so simply but so patiently. He called me by name, twice, Saul, Saul, like some Old Testament prophet being summoned by the Almighty. And actually, I got the sense that's exactly what was happening to me. A calling, a commissioning, a summons from the Almighty. But then from the voice of the light came a question, the question. And from the instant I first heard it, I've asked it of myself over and over the past few days. Why have you been persecuting me? It was then that I saw him, within the dazzling light. Despite my subsequent blindness, despite my steadfast belief that this man was a fraud and a false prophet, 
despite the fact that this man had been condemned and crucified some years earlier, and despite the fact that I had recently devoted the entirety of my zeal and my passion and my powerful intellect to hunting and imprisoning and murdering those who claimed to follow this man, despite all of this, here he was. And he was no mere man. He was no mere phantom. Here was Jesus, alive and speaking to me, speaking to me with patience and grace, his nail-pierced hands resting gently on my shoulders. And he was asking me that question, why have you been persecuting me? I, I was dumbfounded. In the light of his glory and his goodness, how had I ever considered seeking to destroy the beautiful Son of God? After completing my training under Gamaliel and returning to Tarsus, rumors had started seeping north of a man, a teacher roughly my age, who the ignorant yokels claimed could perform miracles. When I returned to Jerusalem, he had already been executed, and you know what I felt? Mostly regret. Many of my colleagues and even a few of my superiors had attempted to engage him in debate, to trap him with his controversial teachings about God's love or this new kingdom he was always talking about. And he had soundly defeated them every time. And so I regret that I never had a chance to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with this rabbi, to show him what a real Pharisee of Pharisees looks like. What an arrogant fool I had been. I actually thought that I could rebuke the author of salvation, that I could outwit the creator of the cosmos, that my selfish, self-righteous, self-centered human mind could overcome truth incarnate. But to my great shame, it gets worse. I used to regret that I never had the opportunity to defeat the false prophet from Nazareth, but I came to realize that I need not worry. If I couldn't destroy the physical body of Jesus, then I could at least do everything in my power to destroy the spiritual body of Jesus, the movement of his followers who were spreading and multiplying throughout Jerusalem and Judea. <sighs> my first taste for this destruction of his body came a few weeks after my return to Jerusalem. I had been spending time at the temple, soaking in as much time with the spiritual elite as possible. And that crucified pilgrim, Jesus, he was constantly a source of stress to them, even though they'd done away with him years earlier. They told me of Peter's preaching prowess, of John's miraculous healings, of their repeated arrests of the so-called apostles, of how they associated with unclean lepers and beggars, how they showed grace to immoral women and tax collectors, how they subverted the Roman Empire and demeaned the Holy Temple, all in the holy name of Jesus. At the time, it seemed as though this movement was becoming a threat to purity, but a threat that could be reasoned with. I was, after all, an excellent debater. I figured we could conquer these misled miscreants with right thinking and demonstrations of authority. Gamaliel himself promoted a patient approach. But that all changed with Stephen. I will never forget Stephen. Stephen galvanized all my hatred for those people, those followers of Jesus. I heard him with my own ears commit what I considered blasphemy, declaring that this accursed Jesus was at the right hand of God. To me it sounded preposterous. How could somebody cursed hanging on a tree be in the kingdom of God? I heard Stephen declare the temple unnecessary and the Sanhedrin a bunch of stubborn enemies of righteousness. I'll never forget my rage at those words, though I am deeply ashamed of that rage. But the other thing that I'll never forget about Stephen was the power that flowed through him. Stephen was an uneducated peasant. I was an academic elite. And I've never spoken with the authority that Stephen had that day. He was aglow with the Holy Spirit, so much so that we couldn't even look at him fully in the face. The Holy Spirit filled him and flowed through him. 
Stephen was utterly unafraid, even as the first stones rained down on him. Even more amazingly, as the next wrathful barrage began to extinguish Stephen's light, he called for Jesus to receive him, and he asked his Lord to forgive his executioners, the men responsible for his death, men like me, Saul of Tarsus, who stood nearby as a witness, holding everyone's coats and proclaiming, How could I ever have proclaimed this? Forgive me, Jesus. But I proclaimed, This man is guilty of heresy and blasphemy. Stone the heretic. Stone the Jesus lover. May his blood condemn him. The only one who was condemned by his blood was us, those who executed him. I shouted all those hateful things. I approved of everything. And still he begged for my forgiveness. I never actually threw a stone, but I murdered Stephen. I participated in the murder of an innocent man. In Stephen's execution, it filled me with purpose, a vengeful anti-Christian purpose. And so I persecuted them. Anyone that I could find, any follower of Jesus, I persecuted them. But really the whole time, even though it was men and women that I was dragging from their homes and throwing into jail, I wasn't just persecuting them. I was persecuting him. I persecuted the Son of God. I persecuted Jesus. In fact, I sit here now in Damascus pondering all of this, and I'm struck by two thoughts. One, how guilty I am, and two, how forgiven I am. I lived my life dedicated to snuffing out the light of Jesus, until I met the light of Jesus, and he asked me why I was doing this. I know exactly why I was doing it. For me. For my selfish, misguided understanding of what faith and a relationship with God really can look like. He didn't appear to me to destroy me, though that's what I deserved. He didn't appear to me to condemn me, though that's what I deserved. He appeared to me to call me, to commission me, to redeem me. For now, his instructions for me are simple. Get up and go into Damascus, which I have done, and wait for further instruction, which I am doing. I obeyed. I think he made his first commands to me simple so I could have time to consider everything, to ruminate on the meaning of the past life of darkness I once had and the new beautiful life I will experience in his light. When I think of my former arrogant self, hell-bent on destroying truth, I feel a pang of guilt and shame, but immediately the light swallows that shame and guilt up. I have been praying to him, not like the prayers of the priests in the temple, all formal and ceremonial and distant, no, I talk to my new Lord as I would talk to my father, with an understanding that I am loved and I am forgiven. I've come to realize that I am truly the worst of sinners for what I did to Jesus. But I've seen him and heard him and experienced him, and the world as I know it has been consumed by his light. I am new. I am reborn. I am truly converted. It's not that I met Jesus and chose to change. In fact, he chose me. And it's not that I've committed to following him. So far, the only thing I've committed to is entering Damascus as a blind man. No, my conversion is simply the fact that I know Jesus and have now surrendered all authority in my life over to him. The light has shown me for who I am, small and broken, but hopeful and valuable. And it's also shown me who he is, glorious, powerful, and alive with love and grace. Once I used to think I was good with God because I had mastered the law. But now I see that that was just garbage. That was nonsense. The law couldn't be mastered by a human. And the law only points to the love of God. I hadn't mastered anything except my own self-righteousness. 
Now I know that I'm good with God because of the loving sacrifice of his son. I know I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve him. And yet he met me in the light nevertheless. I don't know what the future will hold for me, but I keep returning to my father's words outside the synagogue in Tarsus when I was just a little boy. He said to me, why are you standing there? I have work to do. Look, there are Gentiles here. He spat those words out with frustration and self-righteousness. But I sense in my talks with Jesus that, like my earthly father, it seems my heavenly father has work to do among the Gentiles as well. A good work, a new work, a beautiful work. I don't feel like shunning them any longer, the Gentiles. I don't feel more righteous than them anymore either. I understand the depths of my own impurity. So if I can be redeemed, perhaps they can as well. The Gentiles need the light just as I do. I used to refuse truth to so many people. Oh God, help me to boldly proclaim the truth of your son. Truly I am a new man since I've encountered Jesus Christ. Saul of Tarsus is dead. Christ is alive. I haven't had food or water for three days, but I am hungry only for Jesus, thirsty only for the light that he brings. The light is dazzling, but I could stare at your sun forever. Though I am blind, only now do I truly see. Wait, I hear footsteps coming up to the room. Jesus had given me a vision of a stranger named Ananias placing his hands on me, and me being able to see again. I already see in a new way, but perhaps this is him knocking on the door? What if he doesn't accept me as Jesus does? What if the ghost of my past life lingers? My voice is weak with thirst and lack of strength. Perhaps they won't hear me? Come in, this way. I am Saul, a new man, living in a new light. All right, well, I know that that was not a sermon. That was, I'm not sure what it was, but it wasn't a sermon. But I hope from that we can get a, a glimpse of the conversion of Saul, of how far from Jesus he was, literally an enemy of Jesus. And if this enemy of Jesus can be converted and brought back to the light, then there's hope for anyone, hope for any of us. Saul used to cling so desperately to his love of the law that he completely ignored a love of the Father. And in Jesus, he, he would find that. He would find true meaning. You would find what is truly valuable, knowing and experiencing Jesus and living a life filled with the light of his spirit. I know sometimes sermons are, this is what you need to learn today. And sometimes stories are much more open-ended. So I hope in that story, you found something uh, to, to challenge you, um, to encourage you. And uh, look forward to part two next week when we look at the life of Ananias.